This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. Another great big good morning. Great to have you folks here. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful weekend. Got to celebrate yesterday at a wonderful conference called Finding Hope. And I know some people here both were presenters and were part of that. And it, it just captured that essence of spring, right? That, that essence of, of things being born anew. And, and, and the Easter story, it's, it's a brilliant story. And, and it's a story I'd ask you just to let kind of sink in to a cellular level over these next three weeks. Because a story that's, that has so much of life, like again, it's, it's, it's about an ending. The ending of Jesus' life here on earth, and, and in the new church we read underneath that too, like we will face endings. It's also a period of a lot of waiting. Is waiting easy? No, very few people are good at it. And then it's also this promise, this other piece of resurrection. So it has, it has parts of the story that are just, they're, they're just timeless. Like it's just, it's a timeless, it's a meta-narrative. It's, it's a beautiful, incredible story. And it's a story where the whole thing is held in love. As a pastor, I need to be honest. You know, some weeks it's harder to answer the phone. Because I, I know, aside from the telemarketers, we'll throw all them out. We know where they go. And, and uh, you know, if you get a phone call and, and, you know, X number of phone calls are weddings and baptisms and job promotions. And then there's also those other phone calls where somebody's life has changed, often in just the course of a few minutes. And we as a congregation sit with those people as a group and what strikes me again and again, and sometimes strikes me so much I actually say it, is this is your Easter. Somebody's really struggling. This is your Easter. The story will be especially poignant. And I've never had anyone go like, Chuck, you're wrong. Not true. I think that's why, actually, for the original Christians, Easter far outranked Christmas, which is hard to imagine in our culture. But Easter was, was far more significant. In starting the Easter story, the place I want to start it is, is this. I want to tell you a little story about it. So, so the Easter story starts, and I'm going to step over onto this carpet here. Jesus is 33 years old. He's been preaching for two or three years, depending on how you arrange the dates. And he's preached this radical gospel of both radical inclusion, radical love. A love that is actually unsettling to a lot of folks. A love that's actually so deep that it's also deeply challenging. And Jesus knew that his time on this earth was limited, that it was coming to an end. And again, you think about it, folks, like, let it sink in. He preached maybe for three years. I've been preaching for ten. I don't have near the record he does. Pretty amazing what you think about that. The impact. Just the preaching, the healing, the one on that little space. And he knows that this is what's coming. He knows that there is a fire on its way. He predicts it. 
He says it's coming. And again and again, throughout the Gospels, which are the four books that talk about his life here on earth, again and again, he says, the fire's coming. To those who follow him, the fire's coming. And I want you to know this. I think this is how Jesus would say it. He's speaking in modern American English. I want you to know this. I am with you no matter what. I am with you, no matter what. That is not the one more false move, God. That is the no matter whatness of God. Regardless of the fire that he knew was coming, that he was going to live through, that he knew knew those he loved was going to live through, it's just the I am here. I'm not going anywhere. I am with you always. I'm going to step back over here. That's the context we have to hold this story in. And and he knew that this fire had two key ignition sources, two ways that the fire was going to ignite. One were the Romans. Now, this is your little, again, we have some first-time people here. I am a history teacher and a history geek. So occasionally you get a history lesson whether you want one or not. First part were the Romans. The Romans, this was the height of their empire, uh, the land where he was, which is modern-day Israel, was, was key to their empire because it was sort of the land bridge between, between Europe and North Africa, Egypt, and all those places. So it was sort of this critical bridge that they wanted to protect. So they were super, super, super worried about any threats to their rule there. We all know how inconvenient it is for traffic when a bridge goes out. Well, welcome to what their worry was. They didn't want that bridge to go out. And they were going to do anything, anything, to keep it intact. And then there were the religious professionals, the clergy at this time, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious clergy at this time in that land. And they were equally worried because they were, they sort of saw their lives as they were the middlemen. There was God, the middlemen, and then them. And they kind of controlled access to God. Jesus is not good for middlemen. You know, Jesus' message was all about far more of a direct experience of God, not something where you had to go through someone to get to it. And they were allied in part, not fully, but in part with the Romans. One match, the Romans. One match, the religious clergy at that time. And he knew eventually they would light the fire. He knew that was coming. Now what's fascinating about it is is looking at, at kind of why these religious authorities, why did they kind of look at Jesus and think like, yeah, this is a guy, not a guy we want to rally around, but a guy actually we want to get out of the way. Let's, let's look a little more deeply in terms of why they wanted it. Now, one of the beautiful things about any story in the Bible is you never enter the same river twice. It's the same way. I've read the Bible a bunch of times. I'm a pastor. I'm a professional Bible reader. And I had never seen this line before. But I thought, oh, it's important. So I want to share it with you. That's this line. Caiaphas, who was the head priest, as high priest that year, prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, but not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, please remember that phrase, make them one. Can we say that together? Make them one. 
It's really key you hold on to that. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So what he did was, was, was he kind of saw that, wait, if we can kind of get this guy executed, we can get him killed, that will rally the troops. That will rally our nation to maybe throw off the yoke of the Roman occupiers. That will light a different kind of fire. It wasn't about supporting Jesus' message. It was about using Jesus kind of as a rallying cry for their own particular ends. That was a small, if you look over here, that was a small one, the chair on the right, or to your left, excuse me. It was a small idea of oneness. It was a very tribal idea of oneness. It was, it's let's come together over those things that we hate. Big hint from your pastor, that doesn't work well. Very easy to do, to rally people around things they hate. I, I, was, I, was, I went to the, uh, the Philadelphia Union soccer game last night, and they had a big poster across there and, and at the far end of the stadium, and it says, no one likes us. And, and I just thought, like, oh, could you think of something a little more inspirational? <laughs> you know? I mean, we can laugh at that. We're Philadelphians. Let's laugh at that. But, but really, what are you telling your kids to aspire to there? But I feel like it's, 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 it's playing in that same ballpark of rallying people around what's negative. Very, very easy to do. All of us do it, and, and we tend to do it pretty darn well. Now, the other part, folks, is that there's, there's another part to the story which is how Jesus handles all this. So, so he knows there's all this conspiracy going on, and he knows his end is coming. And it's fascinating the way he handles it. I mean, the more I read this story, the more I think it's, it's, it's I, I still don't have handles on it. It's so poignant. For those of you who are new to Christianity, or maybe just sort of dipping your toe in the water, that's why Christianity is called a third way. Because it's not this, it's not that. It's, it's, this, it's this moral imagination of doing things in such a crazy different way you wouldn't imagine it. I mean, folks, just imagine you knew that two groups were out to end your life, that there was conspiracy against you. Literally, there were people like 24-7 conspiring to get rid of you. You know, I'm, I'm thinking Jason Bourne, that, you know, that, that movie. That would be my reaction. But he does it totally differently. Radically differently. I mean, just... Here's how he starts to set it up with his disciples, which are the 12 people who'd fallen, 12 closest people to him. He starts to set it up, and this comes from, from John. Your grief will turn to joy. There's a lie. Just a little aside, like, like even that. I'm going to be talking about this a little bit more next week. You know, I work a lot with counseling, obviously. That's bad counseling. You don't go into somebody who's really sad and say, like, oh, your grief's going to turn to joy. But somehow he makes it work. Your grief will turn to joy. We'll be coming back to that line later on in the series. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Beautiful. So with you. Now is your time of grief. And you, you, can, you can substitute in there. And again, folks, think. This was one of their darkest moments in their lives. They'd given up everything to follow this person. 
And here this person says, I'm about to be killed and you're about to go through a really hard stretch. You could substitute there. Now is your time when something new is being born. I will see you again and you will rejoice. Now that word rejoice was one of my favorite words in the Bible. In the Greek, you could substitute the word thrive. Try that on. You will thrive. No one will take away your joy. Your joy will be complete. After this new thing is born, your joy will be complete. Now, he goes on and he talks about a oneness. Now, now before I show you this next line, what you have to remember is the Bible was an oral tradition. Could most people read at that time, yes or no? No, 90 plus percent could not read. That's why these books in here are so short, because literally they just would have been one reading for a couple hours. You can read through them out loud in a couple hours. So it would have stuck in their mind, that line, that line from Caiaphas said that they may be one. Right? That, that would have been a hook for them, an auditory hook. And now I want you to look at Jesus talking and how he uses that. This is a famous prayer, prayer he offers to God. I've given them the glory that you, God, gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. It's an incredibly beautiful prayer. It's the idea of God, listen carefully to this, it's the idea of God as the great connector. And us, we, are those who are searching to be connected. God, great connector. Us, here to learn how to be connected. Now I want to step over here for a minute and talk about like how different this really is. You have this oneness that, that Caiaphas had talked about. It's kind of a oneness that was facing away from the world, sort of a, a tribalism. How do we set up the walls? How do we set up the gates? How do we not let the barbarians in? How do we create our own little world that just is safe and comfortable and certain? Do we sometimes sit in this chair, folks? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Especially when times are challenging. Especially when we feel threatened. Well, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't talk to you. For, for me, when I feel threatened, I'm like, Phew, how do I get my smallest tribe together? Erect some walls, we'll all be good. But again, notice I pulled the chair back. It's, it's, it's a pulling back. It's like, it's like, how do we pull back from the world? And here's Jesus, and, and it's just not, he's not meaning it lightly. Like, uh, can I tell you guys a silly little joke? So the guy wanted enlightenment. He goes to a hot dog vendor. He said, give me one with everything. You get the joke? Yeah, it, it takes you a minute there. Um, you know, we, it's, it's not kind of that esoteric, like, one with everything. It's, 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 it's this, this is a courageous oneness, This is someone who's willing to, to, to see out there in the world that, that we're connected, who's, who's willing to see both the joy and the pain that we all share, who's willing to say, I'm not going to build walls, but I'm going to open doors and windows, and I'm going to embrace. And that's going to be hard. 
this is easy, this is incredibly hard to do. But this is what Jesus is leaving us with. This is the message that he wants those who follow to really understand. Stepping back over here. It's a oneness. But it's a oneness that's based on a lot of beautiful ideas. It's it's a oneness that's based on the idea of, of radical kinship. It's a oneness that's based on the, the deeper parts of our, our lives where, where we understand in that radical kinship that, that so much of life is shared. Can I tell you folks the challenging part here to this? The challenging part, I think, if you're going to sit in that chair, there's a lot of beauty to it. And there is so much heartbreak. <laughs> There's so much heartbreak. And there's so much joy. And it might be the only place where something new actually gets born. As the band comes out, I want you just to think about how that might show up for you. And after the band finishes this song, I I want to talk a bit about what are the actual specifics? Like, what's a spiritual discipline that we can live into? And I think it's one of the most challenging ones out there that can actually move us into that place. Again, it's a challenging place. It's a place of heartbreak. And it's also a place, and many of you know this, probably all of you know this, it's also a place where hearts come alive, and when we start to feel something, heal. And I think this is really big. You know, we're going to get to that place of healing. We have to understand the meaning of that. We have to understand it deeply. And then we have to live it. And then we have to find that, that challenging way to live it. Now, I want to take a little detour here little detour to, to kind of set up where I want to go with this. And, and the detour is this. I want to speak to heaven for a few minutes with your permission. And I think so much of it, so much of our view of, of heaven, like if we're not clear on where we're going, it, it, we can kind of get lost along the way. So this is a bit of a vision cast. It's a vision saying, yeah, this is, this is what heaven is. A little aside to it, you know, heaven is key, a key part of new church theology. Uh, this, some of you have heard this story already, you know, this, this past summer at our little cabin, there's a professor from Kansas who's just a few, few cabins down, he came over, I told him I was a pastor in the new church, Swedenborgian pastor, and he said, oh, this is what I love about Swedenborgians, those in the new church, they believe heaven is near. And I thought, dude, that's the best definition I ever heard. That's really good, because we do believe heaven is near. So I want to share something that was from Off the Left Eye, where Curtis Childs does a really wonderful job explaining a little piece of that theology. And then after the video, I'm going to tie it back in. So take a look at what Curtis has to share here.
So it's a paraphrase of the famous statement by Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is within you. And Swedenborg says, yeah, he's telling the truth on that. Heaven is something that actually begins in the human heart and mind rather than in some exo-spiritual space somewhere. This is from Heaven and Hell 53. Swedenborg writes, Heaven is not outside angels, but within them. Their deeper levels, the levels of their minds, are arranged in the form of heaven, and therefore are arranged to accept all the elements of heaven that are outside them. So you have this form of heaven in your mind, and it accepts the heaven outside. We're going here because you're saying, what if I don't like heaven? What if I don't feel at home there? Heaven is the definition of home. I mean, it is the outward expression and realization of the thing, the deepest longings in you. It's, is This is like you're, you're coming into to your sense of belonging, your sense of community and of groundedness. Heaven is the experience of being home. They were So I love Curtis's last line in there. I think that, that idea, if we could see it on the next slide, his, his last line, heaven is the experience of belonging. Heaven is the experience of being home. Tying it back in over here. So, so we have to kind of see life that way. You know, our view of heaven actually is really important. I want to step over here and kind of tie in views of heaven with this. It's very easy to get into a view of heaven that is this. The frozen chosen. That heaven is tiny. And it's meant for all those who have done it perfectly. Now, if heaven is just meant for all those who've done it perfectly, please raise your hand if you've done it perfectly. Now you get to see how many people would be in that heaven. This... This actually, you know, I I don't want to overstate it, and I do want to overstate it. This is really big. See, if our heaven becomes this small, those who we're willing to say are going to hell becomes that big. I think of Rob Bell, uh, you know, a pastor hero of mine. He was a large church pastor out of Michigan. And he came up with, with an idea that, you know, maybe hell isn't eternal. A third of his congregation left. What is it in us that, that somehow if, if we don't have a whole bunch of bad people that we can't, we can't, we can't live with it? I, I don't know. Like, that's just strange to me. That you'd be so upset that people aren't going to hell forever that you're going to quit your church. Does that not make sense? Please tell me I'm not crazy. Not crazy, thank you. I just think that's wacky. But this view of oneness is different. This view of oneness is heaven as a choir. This view of oneness, as New Church would hold it, believes that Every single new angel adds to heaven's perfection, and there's always, always room for one more. And don't let how easy that sounds trick you into believing that it's easy to live. (laughs) Because it's not. Again, I think this is far easier to live than this. 
But I think this is Jesus' message. Again and again and again. I'm going to step back over here. I want to now share with you folks, you know, how do we work through this? Well, I, I think the problem for me is that this is how I would prefer to live my life. I would prefer to live my life this way. I want to go back to being independent, busy, and important. Right? That's what I want to be. I want to be, you know, be independent. I want to be busy. I want to be important. Those are, those are three keys to a successful day in my world. It's not what the call is. And, and I think to, to kind of unsettle that, we need to, to, to see this next slide and to see it as, as where our work might be. So I want to share with you what that work might be. And I want you to, to really think, you know, how, how might this apply to me? I think in our life we tend to have three things when we hear a story about people or a story of ourselves. Hero, victim, villain. Could we say those together? Hero, victim, villain. All right, now comes the hard part. So let's take a little breath first just to get ourselves relaxed. When we write our stories, hero, victim, villain, which role do we almost never put ourselves in? Villain. Oftentimes we put ourselves as the hero, not all the time. Sometimes the victim, sometimes we put ourselves in the victim role. Oftentimes we combine those two, the hero and the victim. Do you know what that is called? The martyr. That's the martyr. All of us who have done a few martyrdom studies, raise your hand. You know where we get to be the victim and the hero. It's this, this is so incredibly hard, folks, because I think our job is to shift this around. So, so I just want you to just put yourselves here for a minute. So let's take another breath. And think. In your relationships, where are you most prone to have a hero and most prone to make someone else the villain. An important aside is there are people who do really bad things to other people. I want to be clear about that. Who victimize other people. There really are. And I'm not talking about the, the extreme cases of that here, because that really is true. If you're in that situation, get out. You don't need to play nice in that situation. However, a lot of the time, it's a mental construct that we have. And here's the ouch part, if you're like me, and I hope you are. Well, I shouldn't say I hope you are. I, I, hope, I hope this resonates. <laughs> that was really bad. The, the people I'm most likely to make villains are oftentimes the people I love most in this world. Ouch. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Maybe because I know them best and I know their story the best and all that, and it's so easy for me to kind of paint this picture where I'm here and they're there and all that garbage. 
You want to know how to do really hard spiritual work? Some of the hardest spiritual work I think you can do in your whole life? Give it up. Give it up. Start catching yourself when you see the hero, victim, villain labels going through your mind. We're actually going to, it's such a big point, we're going to come back to it again next week because I really want to elaborate on that. But for now, let's just say give it up. The sacred no. I want to share with you now a story where where Jesus does just that, where, where you get to see him take this, this, this thing and go like, it's not as simple as it appears, folks. And he does that over and over again through the Easter story. He, Easter story is like this lived experience, this lived moral experience where, where Jesus, I think, is saying, yeah, I'm going to tell you, but more importantly, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how to move to a different story. I'm going to show you how to move to one. Now, on this story, lights are going to come down a little bit here. And and, and it's a story where where you have to put yourself in the scene here. And you have to put yourself, this is right before the crucifixion. And and Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And they're they're gathered in in a woods. And all of a sudden, like, there's a fire. There's a torch. And you think about for these people who were already scared, what it would have been like to see torches moving up through this woods with shouts and noise and all that stuff. Would that be a little scary or what? A little bit scary. And if you think of that fire, folks, That's the fire that Caiaphas, that high priest that we talked about, that was the fire he wanted to light. That was the fire for him. That's what he wanted to start. He wanted to see this as the beginning of a rebellion that would would give them sort of a a sacrificial land to organize around and, and then create this rebellion. And it's 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 that close to becoming that. Like that, just that close. But Jesus again shows us a third way in this beautiful, beautiful part of the story. One I like to preach on almost every Easter. And here it is. This is from John 18, verse 10, if you're reading it at home. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That is is just this incredibly powerful line. You think about Peter, and and and, and here is here is Peter. And if we could go if we could go back a slide to the hero, victim, villain. If you think about Peter, he had kind of had, had set himself up as the hero, and Jesus as the victim, and here are all the villains, right? And who doesn't want to be the, 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 the hero? Who doesn't want to be the guy like, yeah, go get your sword and knock some people out? Like, I would want that. But Jesus, he handles it so differently. He doesn't go for that. 
friends, he doesn't want to light that fire. He doesn't want to light that fire of anger and resentment and vengefulness and hopelessness. He wants to light the fire of sacrificial love, of radical kinship. A fire that warms, not a fire that burns. And the beauty of that moment, I mean, the beauty of that moment. I mean, I think it's no surprise that right in the Bible says, touches his right ear. You know, just, just for a minute, just for a minute, just take your left hand, just, just touch your face on, on the side there like that. Don't worry, we're not going to put this on camera. Do you feel the tenderness in that touch? Go home and try that with a loved one. Like, that's a tender touch. That was this healing. That was this new way of doing things. Albert Schweitzer. Until he extends his circle of compassion, talking about humanity here, to include all things, man will not himself find peace. Man will not himself find peace. What Jesus does is he changes all those around. Now all of a sudden the villain is is a victim, and we're not even quite sure who the hero is anymore. Like, like it's just, it's just this dramatic shift that includes it all. And it's easy to look at that and to think, well, yeah, but, but he still got executed. Yes, that's true. But I guarantee that man with that healed ear became one of the first pastors, and boy, was he good. (laughs) Boy, could he bring it. Because he knew it. He knew what true oneness was. He knew the grace that saved. He understood a heaven that was not getting ever smaller. He understood a heaven that was getting ever larger. Maybe that's where we can go this Easter season. Join us on that journey. Join us for the next couple of weeks as as we look at, like, yeah, how do we do that? How do we find this, this new hope? How do we find this way of allowing the Easter story to come to life? Remember that all of us deal with fires. And the best way to face it, and I leave this as my last line, is remembering to turn off your phone before church. (laughs) Remembering oneness. Remembering oneness. And remembering how we do it. Remembering oneness. And remembering how we do it. Which is always, my brothers and sisters, together. Amen. So, please join me in a prayer as we close today's service. So, Lord, we thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your kindness, compassion.
We thank you for your word that gives us insights how to live in new, unimagined, beautiful ways. A oneness ever new. A oneness that gives life. A oneness, Lord, that when we face the fire, when we face the fire, we know this story is about your holding, even in times that are incredibly difficult. We know this story is about your love, even in times that are dark. We know this story is your story. And in some miraculous way, our story, on a human level too. Be with us this week, Lord. Allow Easter to come alive more and more in our hearts. In your name, this Sunday, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv. 